Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. In this episode, Paul Ribb talks about how waking up with central vision loss affected his investment banking career and how it has brought him to a place of developing innovation to help others while becoming world champion of visually impaired tennis along the way. Let's listen to this inspiring story. Hello, OIS podcast audience. Uh, happy to be speaking with you again today. Uh, I don't know how many of you uh, out there have listened to any of my previous podcasts. I'm going to spend two minutes just introducing myself um, so you know the perspective from which I uh, am about to conduct this next interview. Uh, but my name is Rob Rothman. I am an ophthalmologist, a glaucoma specialist by training. I've been in practice for the last 23 or 24 years, starting to lose count. And uh, in addition to maintaining uh, clinical practice, I am also the co-founder and co-managing member of InFocus Capital Partners, which is an ophthalmic uh, life sciences focused venture capital fund. Uh, we have just about completed uh, the investment phase of our first fund, maybe making one more investment. We're working that out right now. We have 13 uh, ophthalmology assets, and we are currently contemplating um, the end of fund one and the hopeful uh, soon-to-be-launched fund two within the near future. Um, I have had the privilege of meeting our uh, current uh, podcast guest uh, very serendipitously, um, and I have spent some time speaking with him over the past few months, and uh, Craig and Maureen and the team at OIS have given me some liberty of deciding who I'd like to interview, and after hearing Paul's story and um, speaking with him on multiple occasions, I thought this would be an absolutely fantastic opportunity uh, for the listening audience to get to know somebody who I find incredibly intriguing and um, uh, some, somewhat inspiring as well. So no, no pressure there, Paul. But um, um, just to make the formal introduction today, we will be talking with Paul Ribb. He is, um, I guess by way of introduction, a longtime, probably 30-year veteran of the investment banking industry. He also happens to be the world visually impaired tennis champion, world champion. And he has now dedicated his um, skill set and expertise uh, to work across all areas of the vision loss uh, environment to try and identify promising um, assets within ophthalmology to help cure blindness and treat ophthalmic disease. So the perspective from which Paul comes, and I'll let him describe it in a little bit greater detail later, is one of finance background, visual loss. I'll let him explain where that came from. Um, and now moving forward to try and help others um, through his through his diverse skill set. So I hope that was a good enough introduction, Paul, but um, it's hard to put into words everything you've done so far in life. So sort of leave it at that and let you sort of say hello and introduce yourself, I guess, at this point. No, thanks, Rob. And I am flattered and blushing um, <laughs> for, uh, for those that can see. But um, I know, as you say, I've, I've had a fascinating um, few years. Uh, quite unexpectedly, uh, I lost all of my central vision at the age of 37 to macular disease, macular dystrophy, macular degeneration, um, has many names, but the outcome is the same. You, you basically go from, you know, sort of usual sight, uh, maybe some refractive errors, fine, I was very short-sighted, but 
you know, I drove, I did everything that one would do with, with contact lenses and correction, but literally woke up at the age of 37 and couldn't read, couldn't see faces, no longer allowed to drive. And, uh, and that was a big, big problem for me because I lived a fast paced life as an investment banker and was, you know, had a lot of risk profile responsibilities and um, it was life changing for me in not just my professional career, but also my private and personal career. So let me jump in. I'm going to interrupt you a lot during this because I think there's a lot of points to highlight here. So you were basically cruising along, living a nice life, uh, doing well as an investment banker. And then you wake up one morning and you're like, wow, why can't I see so well? So what happens? You go to the eye doctor and what do they do? What happens at that moment? I drove to work, which was uh, just typical me, not understanding my problem. Uh, and I then, <laughs> and I then um, decided I better go to Moorfields um, because you know, I was having trouble and where my offices were in the city of London was near the, the preeminent eye hospital. So I basically went to Moorfield, sat there for a few hours, managed to arrange a private appointment uh, with a top consultant who took some uh, pictures of my eyes and basically said to me, you have got central vision loss. We can't fix it. It's dry macular disease. And you're going to get symmetry in both of your eyes. So no more driving for you, please. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for coming. And I was literally cast out of his office with that news, having no idea who I was going to call, what I could then do, and still baffled as to how I could have been in a top eye hospital with no option for cure. Um, so I was very confused at that point. And I remember sitting on the steps of Moorfields on my own, um, you know, just thinking to myself, yeah, life's life's going to change here. This is going to be a rough uh, a rough time. And I, I actually went back to my office and I was very lucky in that I sat next to a, a guy called Simon Halliday, an England rugby player, who had literally met um, a blind charitable organisation in the, in the city of London called Blind in Business, who just coincidentally happened to be next door to my offices. So where Moorfields were unable to offer me any advice or support, or, or guidance as to next steps, I literally picked myself up and went into the blind and business offices. And there really, I would say, was the, uh, the beginning of the new chapter of my life. These, these guys were brilliant. Um, they had answers um, where I thought there were no opportunities or no prospects. Um, they had solutions for what I, I, I basically term affectionately as the ability to live and succeed with cycles. And, and that kind of positive energy is exactly what I needed to hear at that moment. So, okay, so um, we're going to sort of, we're going to run this like a book. So that's the, that's the prelude to the, to the, next, to the next two chapters. So um, when, when I write books, I like to jump around. And t I've written so many, I'm sure you know them all. Um, but but I, I think that what I'd like to do is now let me take a step back and tell me about your finance background. Tell me about what you did um, previously before this sort of happened and 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 how you progressed through the world of finance and and where you all the way through to where you pretty much I guess retired um, and tell, tell, tell us about that so people understand your your financial background because it's going to be very important when we get to the final chapters of this interview absolutely so I uh, started life in 1993 having finished an economics degree at Manchester University I basically was um, one of the lucky graduates that won a won a place 
on the HSBC James Capel Investment Banking Graduate Program. This was 1993. That was a big deal. You know, you're fighting against, even today, you're fighting against thousands of people to win a spot on these graduate programs after college. And um, my career um, basically evolved through equity research analysis, where I effectively trained to become uh, a financial analyst, uh, where I luckily in the 90s specialized in the hottest sector on the street, which was telecoms. Um, And I eventually evolved into a telecoms media and technology specialist um, uh, through many of the, the 90s biggest, hottest deals because telecoms was the hot privatization sector of the moment through that era. And I was lucky enough to work for the top banks on the top deals uh, in uh, equity research. And uh, as a result of that, I, my career really uh, escalated in that I was offered many jobs at different banks where I ultimately took the job in 99 uh, at Lehman Brothers, uh, where I was joined by a, a whole host of, uh, of great talented uh, people. And we became known on the street as, as effectively the number one ranked team by our peers through Institutional Investor for seven consecutive years in the telecom market. So we, we, were the, we were the big guys on the street in telecoms for all that time. Um, and I, I really loved it, loved the team that I was working with, loved the success we had, loved the international travel and the deals we were doing. They were, they were really exciting times. Obviously, um, I knew my eyesight was troubling me, getting worse, um, but I carried on coping with that all through the, the 2000s. And then something miraculous happened in that in 2007, I wake up and I can't see very well. And I really, as we've discussed, was obviously shocked from that point. But then I really made it my ambition to figure out how to live and succeed with that. And I went about finding all the technology that could enable me as a senior executive in banking to understand how I could still work with my team and uh, be involved in, in a risk environment, which is effectively where we were in terms of trading and investing and advising uh, within the telecoms market. And I, and I was amazed that actually there was solutions out there, Zoom text, um, magic software, which was overlay software, which allowed me to basically magnify and color invert everything I was doing on my computers. And, uh, and there's some lovely pictures of me sitting with six very large screens with lots of magnification technology, allowing me to do the job I continued to do. But something very strange then happened in that Lehman Brothers, as people will be aware of, blew up in 2008. And I, uh, at that point, understood that I was privy to uh, permanent health insurance, which meant that if my eyesight continued to degenerate, I would be, um, I would qualify for uh, effectively an insurance policy, which would just retire me on the basis of disability. But when Lehman Brothers disappeared, I lost my right to that insurance policy, which meant I had to start all over again. Um, and I was lucky to lean on my financial career and my success to then be headhunted, ultimately to go and uh, lead a team at the Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, who wanted to establish a telecoms team. And Coincidentally, they actually had the permanent health insurance policy at that bank as well. So I was able to go and and work at RBS in the knowledge and comfort that in the event that my eyesight would render me incapable of working, that the bank and myself would be adequately insured. 
So today, I, I spend a lot of my time recommending and advising people, both able-bodied and disabled people, to genuinely look at their HR policies and see if their companies have things like the, uh, the permanent health insurance or group income protection scheme, because it's such a powerful policy, particularly when you understand that 85% of people in, in the disabled market have become disabled rather than were born disabled, like myself. So I must thank at this point a man called Dennis Lewis. Dennis Lewis was the man at the Macula Society who told me about this insurance policy. And that, knowing that that policy existed, really um, empowered me to continue with my career. And, and I, I would say that I was more successful in investment banking even after losing my central uh, vision. Um, and I got promoted to managing director, was still handsomely paid, was still working on big deals, et cetera. So I, I still think that if you're guided correctly by the peer support early enough uh, and ask the right questions, as I was doing, because I was ambitious to carry on rather than quit, um, you know, you can find a way to carry on living and succeeding uh, in doing what you're doing, despite the challenges that you're faced with in, in not actually seeing. Um, you know, that, that's really what I would say as a strong message. Ask the questions and go for peer support. So you powered through this. So you you had this visual loss. You continued to work and and, and excel through the finance world. Uh, eventually moving from Lehman to uh, RBS and stayed there until when? So officially, I I left RBS in 2016. Um, and uh, you know we had some good years uh, at RBS. Ultimately, RBS uh, wound down their investment banking operations. They were 83 percent owned by the government. So. Uh, we were always on, always on a sticky wicket when it came to risk management and trading and, and investment banking. So uh, with that in mind, I you know, was always looking for a new avenue to channel my knowledge and experience. Um, and in 2016, I went to, uh, ultimately I went to work uh, for a private family office where I ran a, a long, short, absolute return portfolio. Um, so I was effectively trading uh, long, short ideas on the basis of my TMT experience. Some more typical hedge fund type uh, investing. Exactly. And in 2018, had my most successful year ever, basically, in terms of trading. So, you know, that was the culmination of all of my knowledge experience, uh, really concentrating in, in one great trade. It, it was a US-UK trade, uh, B-Sky-B, which uh, was ultimately taken out by uh, Comcast uh, and uh, Fox Disney. Uh, transaction, which was just a wonderful uh, experience to be involved in. Um, but after all of that, um, I, I was really looking for other avenues and other opportunities. And I started to get, I was already heavily involved in the charity sector. So I was on the board of a number of sight loss charities, even at that stage. I want to talk for a few minutes about tennis, because this is one of the most fascinating aspects of of, of you. And, 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 it's not, I don't think, an easy thing to become the world visually impaired tennis champion. I'm sure there are a lot of people who have been very good at tennis who've had visual impairment and are not the world champion. So I'm assuming you played tennis throughout your life, and this is an extension of that, not that you learned how to play tennis after you became visually impaired, correct? So I, I played a lot of sport. Um, I raced cars. I was a very competitive guy. And... Um, Losing my edge or my ability to see meant that I couldn't play with what I considered the big boys. I couldn't play with my friends, couldn't play competitively in football, soccer, 
as you guys know it. Um, but I was never, um, you know, in any national or, uh, you know, sort of uh, county teams. Uh, I just enjoyed the, comp- the competitive and friendly community aspect of, of playing sport. And sure, as a kid, I played uh, for teams and, uh, and the like. When I was um, uh, announced as visually impaired and I got involved with uh, some of the charity community peer support aspects of learning about how to live with sight loss, I was introduced to the idea that to live and succeed with a disability, you need to you need to add some extra things to your bow, which is you need to get fit because your body is going to be exhausted trying to live in the mainstream world, whether you're working or whether you're doing anything. You need to adjust your uh, your fitness levels and your concentration levels. And I was very early on through the Macular Society group meetings that I went to, um, was introduced to uh, visually impaired sport, which again, these were foreign worlds to me. I had no idea these uh, levels existed. I, I, I knew of the Paralympics, but I didn't know that there was a, a beautiful and competitive landscape in, in disability sport. So one of the sports was uh, blind football. I went along, uh, that was a lot of ex-army guys, uh, very aggressive, and I thought, this is not for me. <laughs> so I thought, you're going to get your nose broken. They enjoy hitting you, right? So, and, and, you know, I figured this is not for me. But then I was introduced to blind tennis. And I thought, well, how does blind tennis work? We're all visually impaired. We're not going to be able to see the ball. And very quickly, um, uh, I was shown what it was. It was played down in Wimbledon, which is the home of British tennis, obviously. And I, I traveled down there. And I saw that this was brilliant. They were playing in sports halls at the time with an adapted ball, which was basically a sponge ball with a bell in it. And you get two bounces. If you're partially sighted, you get three with a blindfold. If you're blind and you're on a smaller court. Um, when I say blind, 100% blind versus the, the grades of, of competitive sport, right? So your B1, B2, B3 is the different levels of sight that you're graded to compete. And I thought, now this is a gentleman's sport. I could, I could really get involved in this and um, I started playing it and I was blown off the court by the younger kids and some of the more experienced players and I thought you know how, how am I going to win this I need to get fitter so at that point a leaflet dropped through my door on kickboxing uh, at my home in London and I thought well maybe a bit of hand-eye coordination might be good but I, I was advised that I can't take a hit to the head so I can't do any contact fighting but I could do choreographed fighting, which is effectively what kickboxing is. You just learn, you know, strong core and balance and strength and, and, and all that, that, that goes with kickboxing. So I literally threw myself into kickboxing, got to black belt and gave that up because that, that was really all you could do with kickboxing was just get to black belt. As a result of getting fit with kickboxing, and like I say, when I mean getting fit, I mean doing 200 push-ups and you know, a hundred kicks and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's like revolutionary. I, I was transforming my body. I, I was never getting into that kind of shape if I wasn't going down that path. That led me to being super fit when it came to the competitive VI tennis. And I started to really win. And I became British champion three times in a row. And then uh, after 2012, we, 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 you could see that the Paralympics in 2012 really set the world alight for disability sport. That then created the international arena for cricket, football, tennis uh, on, on the visually impaired circuits. And in 2018, we got invited 
uh, well, the GB team got invited to play in the World Championships. In Ireland, we had 30 countries turn up and it was a brilliant event. And I'm proud to say that I won <laughs> uh, my site category uh, against a very, very good Mexican kid who uh, has now gone on in 2019. He went on to, uh, to win the title uh, against, not against me, I got knocked out in the semis. But the beauty of it is uh, today I'm world I'm ex-world champion and still world number two. And we await, after COVID, uh, the re-establishment of the competitive circuit, uh, for which my first tournament is next weekend in uh, South Wales. That's fantastic. I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, you, you know, sort of take a skill set, adapt it to your um, impairment, and then sort of excel to become world champion. You know, we're not that dissimilar in that regard. I actually am been told that I'm in pretty good shape to become the world champion competitive eater, which is something that I've been working very hard on cultivating. Work, skills on like you Rob, you've got to work on what you love. I, I wanted to make my kids proud, you know, because I didn't want to be this guy that just, you know, I've been told, well, you're not going to see so well again and you're not going to be able to drive. You're not going to, be able to do this. And I thought, well, how can I still succeed and win? And um, so I was always looking for the angles and the edges. That's what I've always done in life. And I thought, well, the VI game can't be any different once you once you get the edge, once you understand the tech, the sport, the, you know, what's available. And that all comes through the community and the peer support. And I was quite shy at the beginning. But once you start asking the questions and meeting like-minded people in the VI world, there's, there's a solution for everything you might want to do. Yeah, it's amazing. It seems like you've impressed your kids, too. I mean, you have how many children, too? <laughs> I got two girls, yeah, right. and, and uh, I've read some interesting. I've read a couple of uh, very, very inspiring little pieces. I guess your daughters, or one of your daughters, wrote about you as, as a father. And um, how old were your kids when you first had significant visual loss? So I was well. It was two thousand and seven when it really happened uh, fast, and um, I basically had. Well, my oldest was. Uh, seven, uh, born in 2000 and my youngest born in 2002. So seven and five was when I really had a sea change in, in my behavior. But I like to think that I didn't miss a step and, uh, and we carry on today. We've got a great relationship. They're 21 and 19 now finding their own ways in life. But, uh, yeah, we've, we've learned a lot together on, on overcoming challenges. Yeah. Well, it's nice to see they, they're, they're pretty impressed by their dad. So, um, you know, obviously you've had that impression on a lot of people. So, um, you 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 are working in the world of finance. You are learning to play competitive, visually impaired tennis, and yet you still have time somehow to become involved with pretty much every significant visual impaired um, charitable organization in England. You've been involved with the Royal National Institute of the Blind, Immaculate Society. You've had a position with the National Health Service. Um, so why don't you go into a little bit about that and tell people the things that you've done outside of your investment activities to try and help um, the visual impaired population? No, thanks, Rob. I mean, first off, I, I, I took a selfish channel on all of this originally, which was I need to figure out how I'm going to live with this condition. And, it's, and it was clear to me there was no one-stop shop. So I aligned myself early to the charities because, you know, they're there to help. And you know, people give and donate to charities um, because they think it's the right thing to do and it's a good thing to do. But when you actually need to call on them and not only call on them, but that they help you and they really help you in terms of transforming your life and getting you on the right path, that's so important. 
and and to me i've never forgotten two or three key people that have been most influential in those early early calls dennis lewis as i mentioned he's now retired but he was a, a retired banker and counselor at the macula society blind in business michael kenny and, and, and dan mitchell in particular really helped me and influenced me on those early choices about how i was going to get myself focused and not be depressed because so many there's so many opportunities for you to wallow in self-pity and be depressed and, and i was really lucky that these people you know helped me find solutions to those channels so at that point i thought well the only place is then to give something back and bearing in mind that a lot of these charities were very wealthy charities you know the rnib 100 million pound a year balance sheet charity was that they want your time and they want your experience rather than your money necessarily obviously they want your money but they also want people to to work with them to help others so i thought well i've got to i've got to help others because i was helped so i got involved and joined the board of the rnib as a trustee and uh, and that was a very rewarding experience i'm still very close with them as an organization and just recorded some podcasts for them actually <laughs> which uh, are soon to be published and i'm good friends with the chair uh, who's a lovely lady uh, called Anna Tyler, who herself is also visually impaired, as are many involved with the society, the, the blind societies. Um, I'm the vice chairman of the Macula Society. They also were one of the very first organizations to help me greatly. Um, and they're one of the most active membership organizations for a community of visually impaired people. And through there, I um, obviously needed to understand technology and access technology. And so I was introduced to the best blind access technology company in the UK called Sight and Sound Technology. And they, uh, incidentally, or coincidentally, now are my core sponsor for my tennis career. But um, again, Glenn Tukey, who is the uh, investor and owner of Sight and Sound, a brilliant man. Again, he took on the idea of investing in visual impaired technology and is now one of the biggest uh, access technology companies in the UK. Brilliant man. And, and a, I'd like to think a friend as well insofar as uh, what he's achieved. Um, so I aligned myself with areas that could help me from a selfish perspective, but also where I could help them. And access tech and charity seemed to be the best place to be, uh, to, to really channel peer support and the VI community. From there, I was then invited um, to be an annual lecturer at the City University for optometry students. So as part of their training, their three to five year training, they don't really get to meet visually impaired people along the way. We're still a bit of a minority when it comes to the idea of, of visual impairment and, uh, and eye disease, uh, which is obviously beyond the just simple refractive error process. So I went along uh, three or four years ago now uh, to deliver a lecture on living and succeeding with sight loss to the City University of London. And I've, I've gone back every year. Um, and uh, last year was my biggest, actually, even on Zoom. We ended up with, I think, 85 um, uh, delegates uh, signed in to, uh, to listen to that lecture, which was very rewarding as well. So I, I like to think I'm giving back and taking uh, in equal measure. Um, but, uh, and as we'll probably get onto in our discussion, that's really still not enough for me because I got to a point now where I'm 50 years old thinking, well, this is all very exciting, but there's more to this sector than just the access technology and the charities. There's the desire and will to really think about how are we going to find cures for the various conditions that we're all inflicted with. Um, and I was shocked and staggered still to this day that I found myself in Moorfields in 2007 
where the doctor, the world leading doctor in macular disease would say to me, well, there's no medicine, there's no, reg there's no registered treatment uh, in anywhere in the world for dry macular disease. And I said, well, that's got to be one of the largest unmet needs um, in, uh, in, in a sort of biotech. And, uh, and that always got me thinking that, you know, really there's um, either a dearth or a glut of, uh, of investment or opportunity in ophthalmic biotech. Um, and that's always bugged me. Um, and all I can say, Rob, is, uh, and I'm going to make you blush, is that, you know, last year, purely whether it's serendipitous or not, I was looking as I always am, for opportunities and solutions to my own condition, knowing that the clock's ticking. So maybe in 10, 15 years, I may get another step change with this macular disease where it gets another grade, uh, grade worse. And I then saw, obviously, the announcement in November from Lineage Cell Therapeutics, which announced that a patient had a reversal or an improvement in dry macula, the world's first reg registered example of an improvement in, in my own condition. And you yourself were on the panel and the platform presenting at one of their web forums. Um, and you talked about the ophthalmic market as a whole, the ophthalmic venture capital market. And that really captured my imagination. Um, and I thought to myself, well, here I am with 30 years investment banking experience. I know everybody from all the top guys in the, in the main hospitals. Uh, in eye research in the UK. I know all the charities. I know the communities. I know the access tech, the diagnostics. Um, I should really get involved in ophthalmic venture capital. It's my, this is my time to think about doing something like this. This is bringing together of all that I've learned and all that I know in terms of both my network and, uh, and knowledge uh, and, and do something good. And um, I started... Uh, started, I've started small insofar as I signed some NDAs with some companies that were pioneering with some solutions for various conditions in eye disease. And I've started to do some research in the global eye disease market uh, opportunity. And it's an extraordinary uh, market in terms of growth, sadly, uh, as we're all getting older and we're all using computer screens. And there's so many reasons why eye disease is becoming ever more prevalent uh, at all different age groups, but obviously largely more so uh, in the older age people. And um, I got excited that um, I should uh, therefore get involved. Um, and as a result, I thought about setting up my own venture capital fund, as, as we talked about, all inspired really from what you've achieved with InFocus. Um, and, um, and as a result of that, I've, I've literally got meetings and calls uh, to, uh, to embark on now in July and August with a view to raising capital specifically uh, for the ambition of investing in innovative biotech startups dedicated to ophthalmology. So that really, so the, so the, the, yeah. the next, I would imagine, uh, stage of your life, um, as you just alluded to, is going to be to try and identify promising companies, promising technologies, promising opportunities, um, and potentially uh, develop your own financial vehicle with which to invest in those those companies. Is that a fair statement? That's a fair statement. I think, again, it was a slide you put up, Rob, which was that uh, in the year 2000, there were no drugs or treatments for macular disease of any kind. And then there started to be treatments for the wet macular disease market. And here we are 20 years later, 
with a $10, $15 billion a year revenue market for the wet AMD market. And I thought, wow, that, that's amazing. But meanwhile, 90% of the macular disease market is the dry kind, which is what I've got. And I'm thinking, well, that's 10 times bigger uh, a market. But yet here we are in 2021 with no uh, treatments for this condition. And I thought to myself, well, if I don't do anything or I don't try and work with uh, all the like-minded people that I've met, then I'm going to get to 60 years old and I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose the rest of my useful site um, and I'll have done nothing to try and uh, avert that. Um, so I figured I've got 10 good years left of trying my damnedest to, uh, to fix this situation, for not just for me from a selfish perspective, but for the global market of dry macular disease, which just so happens to be the biggest uh, market of unmet need in the, in the world of ophthalmology. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, we'll have to, um, next time you're in New York, we'll have to go out to dinner with Steve Salstein. And Steve Salstein runs the Force Family uh, Network, which is a family office services network. And um, we have a personal connection. Um, it's a long story, but he was actually my wife's first boyfriend, don't ask. And um, I've known him for a long time. And uh, we, we got acquainted and he asked me to, to host that interview with Lineage you know, based on my expertise as an ophthalmologist and also as a venture capitalist specializing in ophthalmology. And Lineage is a very exciting company and they've just had some very positive data and, uh, mm. you know, very, very excited to continue to, to watch them develop um, their technology. We've, and in focus, have come across, you know, we've evaluated hundreds of companies over the last two years, uh, focusing on all areas of eye disease. But, you know, dry macular degeneration is, is sort of the holy grail um, and there are some promising things, hopefully, out there. And 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 I think from a selfish perspective, you know, I think one of the differentiators of what we do is that we are um, run by ophthalmologists with finance experience, and we're motivated to find better treatments because we see what happens to patients now, and we think that that medicine can do better. And we're going to go out there and find those things. You have the same motivation. Um, from the perspective of actually having that disease, um, and you just happen to have a finance background, I think that um, it's unfortunate that that you've you've been afflicted this way. But there's an opportunity here for this to be really meaningful because you're motivated to 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 you know, find the answer. Yeah, you know what, Rob? Though one thing that I've always marvelled on, and I and I use this a lot, is that technology cured blindness five years ago by embedding at source. What, what Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, and Google have done for accessibility is incredible and transformational. And I mean that in terms of the financial impact. It, it's free at the point of source. I was lucky. I was at an investment bank, which meant that any of the software that, or hardware that was available, I could purchase right through my uh, employment. But that didn't mean that there was accessibility. In the, you know, five, 10 years ago, there wasn't that level of accessibility available to the masses to live a seamless or, or an equally opportunistic life. Today, technology is embedded at source and available in the mainstream. Some of the most prolific products were uh, origined out of blindness. So audio books, for example, it's one of the most mainstream considerations or podcasts that they're beautiful products that the blind and the visually impaired can truly uh, access and benefit information for and from. And I was always struck with the the fact that technology has evolved very rapidly, as we know, but yet on the medical front, we've not really seen the breakthroughs in so many of the eye disease conditions that one would hope for. But there is some super exciting 
stuff in the AI and diagnostics stuff, way over and above the drug and device levels of, uh, or areas of investment. So access tech, AI and diagnostics, I thought were particularly interesting and powerful. And that's largely why I was very excited about the idea or the dynamic idea of a venture capital fund that would therefore encapsulate those five themes across ophthalmology. So not just drugs and devices, obviously as important as they are, obviously include those, but adding in the access tech, the AI and the diagnostic elements in ophthalmology, there's some exciting things right here and right now that need funding. And for early stage seed funding is, it's not called the valley of death for no reason. It is the mm -hmm. toughest and hardest area to raise finance. And that's where I thought I could really channel some of my knowledge and experience in helping some of these exciting projects get off the ground and give them a chance to, to really catch up with, uh, with the market need. Yeah, I think it's, it's fascinating. I think that one of the, uh, one of the things that was sort of motivating for both, you know, my partner, Ron, um, Weiss, who's my partner in the venture fund, um, and I was that as we started to move, you know, more and more into the world of, of venture capital financing of early technology was that we heard continuously over and over again that there's a, a severe paucity of high quality capital for early investment. And, and unfortunately, that's when the quality of the capital needs to be the highest because it's the, it's the quality of that capital that increases the probability of success of these companies. And, and, and I think that's why what you eventually do in this space will be somewhat transformative. Um, because if, you know, there's enough high quality capital out there funding early investments, we will see success. There is technology that will succeed out there. And what we need is to make sure that the right companies are funded who have the greatest potential to move forward. And, and it's just, there's not enough money. There just isn't enough money. And the risk, risk profiles have changed and, um, investment horizons for, you know, larger VCs tend to be somewhat unattainable for early companies. And, um, some of these companies just need, you know, a little bit of tender loving care and enough capital will move to a, an inflection point where they can really just explode and, 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 you know, we, we hope we have those in our portfolio and we think that there's a lot more of those companies out there as well. So, I mean, I also would say that eye disease, it, it comes a poor second really, or, or, or poor, comes really low down the list on the, uh, the public's consciousness for major uh, problems. So cancer, diabetes, um, Alzheimer, dementia, all of those concentrated conditions obviously have a lot more traction, capital, and press uh, in a consolidated way than eye disease. And, you know, my understanding is that there is just too much fragmentation in the way in which the world looks at visual impaired or eye disease or refractive error problems. They don't consider it as one problem. Um, it's, that is largely why there isn't the same amount of effort that goes into the, uh, the eye disease market. But yet, all the data that I've looked at shows that eye disease uh, and vision loss, which ultimately leads to greater problems, but eye disease itself is actually the largest, one of the, the largest and fastest growing problems of disability uh, in, the, in the world today. And um, figures from the WHO, UN, et cetera, put it as you know, really accelerating that growth and doubling uh, over the next 10, 15 years. So it's, yeah. it's a really serious problem both in the developed and in the underdeveloped world, many cases of blindness are unnecessary and could be prevented. And many cases of visual impairment and eye disease 
um, can be helped and improved with the right care, the right attention, the right, uh, uh, obviously, support. And therefore, the whole living and succeeding with a disability, but then investing in the future cures and generations for, uh, for finding solutions really brings together the whole ethos of a venture capital fund because you're able to have an impact today on people's lives with certain conditions, so through access tech or through AI and diagnostics, as well as investing in the drugs and devices for tomorrow, which you know will really yield a return. So that's why I'm very excited in this space right now because I think we all have a chance uh, to, to bring it together. Uh, well, I, I hate to, you know, be done with interviews at any point, but um, I'm sure we could go on for about another 10 hours, you know, having so much commonality here. But um, I, I, I think that I will sort of summarize this with the simple statement that I am fairly confident that your past history of success and your current motivation um, from the personal perspective that you have unfortunately been um, placed into that you will succeed and that you will you will be somehow responsible for helping to solve some of these problems um, one way or the other using you know the skill sets that you have um, as far as I can tell I'm not sure you really know how to fail so so good for you and 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 I'm looking forward personally to um, working with you um, so that we can both sort of align ourselves in a way that will achieve you know common goals which is ultimately to you know, help people. And, and I think we'll, I think we'll do it. Brilliant. No, I think we will. We'll certainly be the, uh, the ones that are going to try. So Paul Rib, thank you so much for taking time with us today. Um, thank you to OIS for allowing me to have this conversation. Um, and uh, hopefully people will uh, listen to this, be inspired and obviously seek you out and, uh, you know, hopefully uh, help you in, in, in ways that you might need to be helped. Um, but again, uh, thank you again, Paul, and thanks again to the OIS listening audience. Uh, I am looking forward to future podcasts, uh, down the road. Thanks again, Paul. Thanks, Rob. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. Paul found ways to overcome the adversity he encountered with vision loss and is using it to move in a positive direction. To see what other innovators are doing to advance eye care, register to attend the OIS European Innovation Showcase, Tuesday, July 20th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. And come back next week for another episode of the OIS Podcast.